0: again to the perimeter church podcast we are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service for more information about this message this week's teacher and to watch or see other messages please visit our website at perimeter.org thank you for joining us today Worship by looking at God's Word, too. If you have a Bible, look at Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. You'll see the scriptures on the screen that we're going to look at today as we look at God's Word. And uh, let me just say a word about that. You know, worship uh, is about our uh, giving our hearts to God and giving Him praise and then hearing what He, as our King, would say to us. And it's all of that. And so I hope you don't stop having a worshiping heart when we have the preaching of the Word. Do you stay in a mode of worship to put your focus upon him even as we hear the word? And I hope also you don't view all the music as just the lead up to the sermon. And uh, because uh, even though we would say in our tradition that the preaching of the word is central and uh, so important, uh, it's not that everything else is a warm up. We are here to uh, uh, communicate with God and hear from him both. And so that's a great thing about our approach. You know, my, probably for many, many people, the name of C.S. Lewis is a famous name. He's the author of The Line, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and a lot of other works of fantasy uh, that uh, have captured a lot of people's attention. He's also the author of a book called Mere Christianity and other writings that have been used of God to define and defend and explain the Christian faith to people that are skeptics. And C.S. Lewis was a great candidate to do all of that. Because he was a convert, a convert out of years of being an agnostic. Well, a lot of people know the name of C.S. Lewis, but not as many people know the name of G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton was a, also a British novelist and writer and philosopher, so to speak, who came a little bit before uh, C.S. Lewis. He was born in 1874 and died in 1936. and He was, through his writings, one of the three or four primary influences that led to the conversion of C.S. Lewis. In fact, C.S. Lewis one time said that the writer George MacDonald baptized his imagination and G.K. Chesterton baptized his intellect. And that's what led him to faith in Christ. In one of his writings, G.K. Chesterton talks about the propensity that we all have to live self-centered lives. To live our lives as if they are all about us and we're the star of the whole story. Being too too self-focused. Listen to what he says. It says, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? I think that's great. Let me read that again. How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? If you could really look at other people with common curiosity and pleasure, if you could see them walking as they really are, you would begin to be interested in them. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always played, and you would find yourself under a freer sky. I really like how he has said that. And if that's true about our relationship with other people, we live larger lives and freer lives when we're more focused on other people than ourselves, then how much more true is that about our relationship with God through Jesus Christ? The truth of the matter is that we need that kind of message, don't we? We need something to help us focus more on Jesus. C.S. Lewis was the one who famously put it this way, that there are only three options about what we can believe about Jesus since he claimed to be God the Son. If he claimed that and it wasn't true and he knew it wasn't true, then he was a liar. If he claimed it and it wasn't true but he thought it really was, then he's a lunatic on the level of someone who thinks he's a poached egg. But if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, then there's only one other option, that he is the Lord God. And if he is the Lord God, my life story is to be about his story. He is to be the star of the story of my life. And I will find myself living in a larger life, a freer life, a bigger life. If I step out of the story where I'm the star, and I step into the story where he is the star. Does that make sense? We are today in the third week of a four-week series called Jesus Outside the Box. And it's the idea that the Jesus that you have inside your little box, your little understanding of him, well, he's not worthy of your submission or your worship, but the real Jesus is much bigger than the box that you have him in. He will captivate your heart and your mind and your life, and he will leave you never the same again. And if you are bored with your faith, you're probably bored because Jesus, in your experience and in your understanding, is still inside that little box this message is for those who are doubting the truth of christianity doubting the reality of their faith thinking about walking in the way or just bored with their faith it's also today for those who need guidance who need deliverance who need rescue who need god to take care of them and do something for them that they just cannot do themselves and if that's where you are Today's message is very, very much for people like you and like me. This series is out of a New Testament book called Hebrews. It is, in my opinion, written to some second-generation Jewish Christians. And those second-generation Jewish Christians are thinking about reverting back to the Judaism of their grandparents. Or they're thinking about wandering away into a new religion in the Roman Empire called Gnosticism. And the writer of the book of Hebrews basically says, "Don't, don't do that, don't do that. He says, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those wonderful stories of the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those wonderful people of the Old Testament. And particularly, he's the fulfillment of these three things. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was led by people that occupied three different offices. It was sort of a division of power in their governance, so to speak. There were prophets who delivered the word of God. There were priests who interceded between the people of God and God himself and made atonement for sins, and then there were the kings who ruled. Well, all those prophet, priests, and kings, they were separate people in the Old Testament, but all of those people were really pointing forward to Jesus. That Jesus would be our Savior by being our prophet and our priest and our king. Now already this morning we've had a little catechism from the Heidelberg Catechism that came from the Dutch Christians of years ago. Even before we get into God's Word, I want us to look at the Westminster Catechism written by the Scottish believers that preceded us. We're going to look at four questions very simply, just like we did with Chip. I'll read the question, if you'll pay your attention to the screen, and together we'll read the answer. Question number 23 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What offices does Christ fill as our Redeemer? Together, Christ is our Redeemer fills the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king in his states both of humiliation and exaltation. That means when he was here humbly walking around among us before his resurrection and then after his resurrection when he's had glory. Question 24, how does Christ fill the office of a prophet? Christ fills the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our complete salvation. How does Christ fill the office of a priest? Christ fills the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself to God as a sacrifice, to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God, and in making constant intercession for us. That was last week's sermon, then related to today. How does Christ fill the office of a king? Christ fills the office of a king in making us his willing subjects, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. This series is about that Jesus speaks, as our prophetic savior. Jesus atones, he's our priestly savior, and that today Jesus reigns, he is our kingly savior. We have started today by uh, looking at a catechism, but we want to look at God's Word. We've been seated to hear the Word of Man. Would you stand as we hear the Word of God from Hebrews 1, 1 through 3? We'll start today in the very same passage we've been anchored in the last two weeks, although we'll look at a little more of chapter 1 and 2, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. If you're following in the insert, that's the ESV version, the English Standard Version. I'll be using and on the screen. You'll see the New International Version. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers. Oh, let me mention as well. You're going to see highlighted in yellow the parts of this related to Jesus as king. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. O Lord, we ask you now to take your word, show us Jesus, and draw us closer to him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as Americans, we uh, naturally don't like the idea of kings. In fact, one of the sayings that was used around the American colonies at the time of the American Revolution was this, we serve no sovereign here. And Unfortunately, sometimes what was true in our political way of thinking spills over to our spiritual way of thinking. I serve no sovereign here. I will be my own king. I will be my own sovereign one, and I will bow the knee to no one else. Well, it's a very good thing politically that we don't have any king who we put our faith in who is simply a human being. The truth of the matter is this. We were made for the reign of King Jesus, we were made to live under his rule so that he would defend us and guide us and guard us and lead us. The reason, in fact, that there's so many great stories of literature through the centuries about a good and benevolent and wise and powerful king is this, we were made for that story. We were made for that story. This is in tru, du, truly the story of the universe. And just like I can't be my own prophet in and find ultimate truth by myself. I can't be my own priest and atone for my own sins. They're too big and deep. I really can't be my own king. And when I try to be my own king, the result simply is never good. The enemies of my soul will conquer me every time and I will find myself in my life unmanageable. I will be powerless in the face of those enemies. Every person who goes through a 12-step program. Every person who's been involved with AA or any form of it knows this. A key turning point is when a person will say, I become powerless to lead and reign and rule in my own life. I need to surrender my life to a power higher than me that can take care of me. And that power, in fact, is Jesus. If we live that kind of life, with our reigning over ourselves, It will be, as Chesterton said, a tiny, tawdry little play in which we live. And God is inviting us to a bigger and a larger story. Here's the big idea of today's message. We are all prone toward wanting self-governance. We are all prone toward wanting to be our own Lord. But we were made to live under the Lordship of someone who loved us so much. He became our perfect sacrifice and our perfect priest. And then he came as our prophet to declare to us the good news of what he has done for us. That's what we are made for. And this passage today in Hebrews says that Jesus is that kind of king. Two kinds of questions we're going to ask today of this. Who is this King Jesus? How does Hebrews describe him? And secondly, what does this king offer to us and to the whole world? So let's dig in. Here's the first question who is this King Jesus? How does the passage describe him? It describes him two ways, as ruler of angels and Lord of all. That's how we know that he is the Son, ruler of angels, Lord of all. In other words, he reigns in the heavenlies, he reigns over even those big angelic beings, but he also reigns on earth. He is Lord of all. Now let's notice, How the writer of Hebrews describes that Jesus is ruler of the angels. Look at verses 3 through 6, beginning in the middle of verse 3, please. The writer says, After Jesus had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You're my son, today I've become your father. The answer is none. He's never said that to an angel. Or again, I'll be his father and he'll be my son. Never said that to an angel. And again, when God brings his firstborn, that is Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, something we need to understand is this angels are really cool. Angels are really powerful. Angels are not just glorified human beings, angels are heavenly beings. And over and over again in the scriptures, when people are confronted with angels, they are struck in awe because of the beauty and the power of this angel. People often fell down as dead in front of these angels because they were frightened to see this angelic being with this beauty and his power and his majesty. Angels carry out and execute the will of God in all kinds of ways. Angels also protect God's people. Years ago, Billy Graham wrote a book about angels. And in that book, he tells the story of a missionary, Dr. Patton and his wife, who ministered years ago on an island in the Atlantic. The story goes that years ago, as they came to this island and sought to share Christ, as is often the case for those who have been the first to go to lands like this, those who lived there did not welcome them very well. In fact, they came one night to burn down the home of this missionary and his wife. The missionary and his wife saw these warriors gathering outside of their home and around the mission compound, and so they began to pray. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed. All night they prayed, and when the sun came up, they saw that these warriors had left. About a year later, the chief of that tribe was converted. And after his conversion, the chief and this missionary were discussing that fearful night of the previous year. And the chief asked the missionary, Dr. Patton, Who were all those men that night who were surrounding your home? And Dr. Patton said, there was no one there but my wife and me. And the chief said, but we saw hundreds of large, powerful men in shining apparel, all with drawn swords, and we dared not attack. Angels, in my opinion. Angels protect God's people. And angels also primarily are messengers. In fact, the word angel means messenger. How did Joseph and Mary learn about the birth of Jesus? It was angels. There are so many Old Testament examples of angels being God's messenger, I didn't even know where to start. There are too many of them. But Perhaps what takes the cake in my opinion is even when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he did so through an angel. Well, the people at the time that the writer of Hebrews is writing, there were certain people that elevated the role of angels. Certain religions that had combined Christianity and Judaism and all kinds of things. and The writer of Hebrews basically says, no, no, you think angels are great, but they're not as great as Jesus. No angel was ever called the son of God, but Jesus is the son of God. Angels are to worship Jesus. Jesus is to be worshiped by angels. Those angels, they're simply the servant of God, but Jesus is the very son of God. He is Lord. The second way the writer here talks about Jesus being God's son is not only is he the ruler of angels, but he's the Lord of all. He is the Lord of all the nations. He is the Lord of all creation. He will reign over everything in heaven and everything on earth. Let's see how that's described beginning in verse 7. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes angels winds, his servants, flames of fire. But about the sun, he says... Your throne, O God, notice the Son is called God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Christ has a kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you've laid the foundations of the earth, and the earth are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain." They will wear out like garments, but you roll them up like a robe, and like a garment they'll be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. In other words, this created order, the heavens and the earth, it doesn't last forever, and it didn't exist forever in the past, but Jesus is forever, and just like you or I would be able to roll up a robe, Jesus can take this whole universe and roll it up. That's how big he is. Verse 13. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? He says, here is Lord of all. The way he does it is this. He says, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those messianic psalms of the Old Testament. All those other passages too. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, everything that said that someday there would be a Messiah and a king that will reign over all the earth and the heavens and the earth. That is Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all. You know, I love, I love hymns. I hope that, and I'm so thankful in our church we haven't lost the use of hymns because they're rich in their theology. But sometimes, you know, it does something for our hearts to worship God with the simplicity of a chorus. And there's an old, old chorus that's very simple, but I still love it. It says, he is Lord, he is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you know that old chorus? Let's sing it together. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. That is who Jesus is. In the first week of this series, I shared with you that this book of Hebrews is for people that are going through doubts. And I shared that at the time I began seminary, I was going through one of those doubts. And a very big part of what I was wrestling with was this. Can I trust Jesus to be the Lord of my life? Can I trust his sovereign decisions for me without embitterment or disobedience? And what God did in my life was show me that not only is he Lord and I cannot contest it, but he is my good Lord and he is worthy of my trust. Ruler of the angels, Lord of all, and therefore Lord of me. Now the question for the book of Hebrews is this, if that's who Jesus is, why don't we see it very readily? Why do we miss it? The answer is this, as he begins to discuss in chapter 2, we don't see it because of the humble incarnation of our Savior. He is the Lord, but he is the Lord incarnate. Follow with me on the screen as we look at nine very important verses in Hebrews chapter 2 because here we see the humble, the surprising incarnation of Jesus. Hebrews 2, beginning in the middle of verse 8. Focus with me, a little bit of long reading but hang in there. In putting everything under him that is Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels in his uh, incarnation, now crowned with glory and honor. How? Why? Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect, and that means not that he was sinful before and then made perfect, but he was made ready and equipped even to die for our sins and to intercede for us. The author of their salvation, he made perfect how? Through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy, that is Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. And so Jesus is not ashamed to call them, that is us, brothers. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And he will free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. And for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now the writer of Hebrews basically in chapter 2 is saying this. He is saying, we as redeemed image bearers, someday in the new heavens and the new earth, we will reign with Jesus over all of that, including being the ruler over angels. That's in our future. But we will have that exaltation, so to speak. We will have that glory because Jesus had his humiliation. We will have that kind of eternal, powerful life because Jesus tasted death for us. And we no longer have to fear death because the death of Jesus was the death knell of death in our lives. There is something more powerful than death and it is the life of Jesus. And to accomplish that, He became one of us, the surprising incarnation. He suffered with us, and he suffered for us. Now let me ask you this. What kind of king does that? What kind of king wins his kingship by laying down his life for his people? That's the kind of Jesus that we can trust. That's the kind of king that we can follow, the one who has been a savior for us, as well as the Lord. What does this king, who is this king? He's the ruler of all, he's the Lord of all. And what does this king have to offer? There are two things that he has to offer to you and to me, and they are these. He offers us true refuge and true justice. True refuge and true justice. And the point is this, Jesus is the source of both. I don't want you to miss that. Jesus Is the source of both and because of his incarnation he is the one to hand out justice and he is the one to be our refuge now in terms of this idea of of justice isn't this true think about it when it comes to the sins and atrocities of other people especially if we have been the victims of their sins and their atrocities what is it that we want we want justice right But When it comes to our own sins, our own atrocities, our own failures, what is it that we want? We want a place of refuge. We want mercy and we want grace. Uh, Years ago, a fellow by the name of Dr. Paul Little wrote two terrific books, one entitled Know What You Believe and the other entitled Know Why You Believe. In that book, Know Why You Believe, Paul Little discusses our desire for justice, our desire for this world to be set right, our desire that that suffering would end and the atrocities of person to person would end and people would stop harming their own lives and sinning against the creation and everything else. And He says, well, yes, we all yearn for that, but let's imagine that God would declare that after midnight tonight, none of that would exist tomorrow. Judgment will come at midnight tonight against all of those sins. And tomorrow, none of those kinds of things would be done. And then Paul Little asks this question. If God were to do that, who of us would still be here tomorrow? And the answer, of course, is none of us. None of us. If God were to keep all of that from happening tomorrow, he would stop my sins against you and my sins against others. And judgment would come. See, here's the deal that if we want only justice without mercy, none of us will stand. And so we need both a place of refuge as well as a savior who brings justice. That's what this is all about. Malcolm Muggridge was another British intellectual who was converted from agnosticism into faith. And Malcolm Muggridge was once asked the question, what is wrong with the world? And he answered the question with one word. He said, me, me. I am what's wrong with the world. You're what's wrong with the world. It's us and that's why we need not just justice, we need a place of refuge. That's why we need Jesus. My friends, here is the gospel in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is Lord of all and he will be the one one day to hand out justice. But he is also the place of refuge for all of us who know that we cannot stand up to the justice of God. At the same time, he is that kind of great Savior. He is that kind of great King that, yes, he will bring judgment. But he offers at the sacrifice of his own blood and his own life a place of refuge and a place of deliverance and a place of salvation. And not only does he come to be our perfect sacrifice and our perfect priest, he comes to be the prophet who declares to us what he has done on our behalf. And then he comes to reign over those whom he has redeemed. Let me ask you, there's, is there anybody else like Jesus? Is there any other king you could trust like that? And let me ask you this question. Are you today wrestling with surrendering to Jesus in some part of your life? If you are, you probably are doing so because you aren't really convinced in your heart of hearts that he will be good to you. You need to know that here's a Savior who died for you, who was raised for you, and you can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him. It is this kind of Savior, and therefore, we bow the knee. And My friends, that goes on every single day. In this last week in my life. Through the kindness and courage of my family, I've been made aware of some things in my life that need to change. And I appreciate my family bringing this to my attention. Not an easy conversation, but a good one. Because as they talked with me lovingly, I was able to see this. I'm living too often as if the play of my life is all about me, and it's simply not. It is about Jesus. And that will transform the way. I interact with my family and with you and with everybody else and everything else. It is the good, benevolent kingship of Jesus that will set us free from those things that take us aside. See, years ago when I headed to Chicago and I was in a place of doubt, I was in a place of doubt because of both disappointment and disobedience. And God brought me to see The lordship of Jesus in relation to my disobedience and the goodness of Jesus in relation to my disappointment. And five years after experiencing that disappointment, I began to see what God was up to. I began to see how all things work together for good to those who love God or are called according to his purpose and I was embarrassed that I doubted his love for me and his control in my life. I said, Lord, you are good. And your plan has been better than my plan. Thank you that I can trust you. Maybe you're in a chapter like that in your life. You're wondering, what in the world has God up to in my life? How will he guide me? How will he provide for me? How will he deliver me? I don't know, but I do know this. If you're living your life under the lordship of Jesus, he'll come through for you. He will be your good and holy and good and powerful savior because he has given his life for you. Now, the book of Hebrews is staggering in two different ways. First of all, it is staggering because of how overwhelmingly it gives us the good news of Jesus. It says basically, you thought what happened in the Old Testament was good? Jesus is better. He's better than Moses, and he's better than Joshua, and he's better than the Aaronic uh, priest. He's better than the priest Melchizedek. He's better than anybody and anything else that's gone before. He is better, he is wonderful. You think that was great. Well, the good news is overwhelmingly good in this book of Hebrews. 80% of it, 90% of it telling us the good news. But You need to know this too. The book of Hebrews has 10 to 20% that is staggering because of the sobering warnings that it gives to us. It gives us warnings not to refuse the word of this grace and of this gospel. Not to turn it down. It gives the staggering, sobering warnings not to let our hearts be hardened against God because of any reason. Let me just give you two examples of those kinds of verses. They're very short readings. Hebrews 2, 1 through 3 says this, We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we don't drift away. Are you drifting away? For if the message spoken by angels was binding, And every violation and disobedience of what they said received as just punishment. Well, how will we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord himself, that is Jesus. And it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. In the Old Testament, there are people that refused to hear the good news preached by angels. And they paid the price for it. The writer of Hebrews says, if that happened to them, what's going to happen to us If we refuse to hear the word that comes from Jesus himself, if we refuse his gospel. Then Hebrews 3, 12 to 15 says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if we hold firmly till the end, the confidence we had at first. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say we were saved and we'll lose it if we don't persevere. It says the way that we know we have been saved in the past, the way we know we are saved now, is if we persevere in the future. The hallmark of those who really know God is that they persevere. But the warning of Hebrews is so staggering because of this. I do not know my heart until I see myself persevering. It is my willingness today to submit to the lordship of Jesus. It is my willingness today to believe in the gospel of Jesus that gives me the assurance that he is my Lord and my Savior. And it is a frightening book for those who have made a false profession of faith. A frightening book. The hallmark is perseverance. So let me ask you today, are you taking for granted so much the gospel? that you are not believing in his powerful work to change you. We cannot walk away from his grace like that, but every day come back to it, come back to it, come back to it. How do we handle these sobering warnings from this book? We throw ourselves upon the good news of Christ. We look into the gospel again and again, and this is a great book of the good news of Jesus. The good news being what he has done for us in his life and death and ascension and resurrection and reign. This is what he has done. And Again, here's just the example of the goodness of our king in Hebrews 2. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers, like us in every way. That's how much he loved us. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That's how much he loved us. That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He went to the cross. That's how much he loved us because he himself suffered when he was tempted he's able to help those who are being tempted what disobedience are you tempted toward what disappointment are you tempted to let it overtake your heart my friends jesus will help you with that temptation run to him with your feelings and the good news is that he will save you you know we will never really believe the good news until we hear the bad news We have to hear the bad news before we see how good the good news is, but the good news is so much stronger than the bad. The grace of God is so much greater than our sin and greater than our doubts and greater than our disappointments. I want to conclude with a story from the Old Testament. This is a story of judgment and it's a story of refuge. It's a famous story, probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible, though most people don't ever know how to see Jesus in the story. It's the story of Noah and his ark. It's not just a fable. It's not just a cute story about animals and an ark. It's a story of justice, a sobering justice of God that came against the world. But it's also a story of refuge. Where was the place of refuge, my friends? It was in the ark. Jesus is the ark of refuge. And if we go into him and put ourselves into Jesus, we are delivered from the judgment of God. This relates, I need to say, to this series of tink, about the Ten Commandments that Randy is preaching. That is the changed life. That is the bigger life, the larger life, the fuller life, the laws of love, laws given to us because he loves us, laws given to us that we would know how to love God and love other people. That's the larger life, but I don't want you to misunderstand this. The story of the Bible is not about what we do. The story of the Bible and of Christianity is not about us becoming better and acting better. The story of the Bible and the story of your life if you're a follower of Jesus is the story of him doing for you what you cannot do for yourself. The story of him delivering you, the story of him changing you so that those changed behaviors, those changed attitudes, that changed heart is all to the praise of Jesus because he has been the refuge that we needed my friends make this a daily endeavor daily re-enter the ark and look to him to be your refuge daily bow the knee for him to be your savior and your lord one last verse as we conclude from chapter 12. Hebrews 12 is one of those chapters that has a stark warning and has a promise of the gospel, and this is what it says in verse 28. Therefore, we're, since we are receiving a kingdom, and Jesus is that king, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Here's the reality. If I live for the kingdom of Bob, that kingdom is going to be shaken every day and that kingdom one day will be destroyed. But the kingdom of Jesus is unshakable. The kingdom of Jesus is forever. And we are all prone to self-rule, but when we live under the kingship of Jesus, we find ourselves living under freer skies, living a larger life, and Jesus is taken out of the box. You know, Back in August of 1984, I took Margaret Ann Ruff to be my wife. She took me to be her husband. It's an interesting use of the word take or receive, isn't it? Well, that's what it means today when I would say to you, take Jesus to be your prophet. Take Jesus to be your priest. Take Jesus to be your king. Jesus speaks. Jesus atones. Jesus reigns. He is all that we need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you, we do praise you that you are that kind of tremendous, tremendous Savior. Thank you for our sake, that though you were king of heaven and earth, reigning before your incarnation, you left the glory of heaven that you would become one of us and you would suffer with us and you would suffer for us so that we someday would be delivered from death, from sin, from sin, from all the harm that our spiritual enemies would mean to us. And Lord, today, we want to look to Jesus to guide us, to guard us, to protect us from the enemies of our soul. And thank you that we can trust that kind of king. We thank you that we can trust that, that kind of sovereign in our lives to dictate what happens around us. He's loved us so much, he laid down his life for us. And he proclaims to us the good news of what he has done for us. So we praise you, Jesus, our prophet, Jesus, our priest, Jesus, our king. We pray it all in your name, O Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.